All right. The title of the sermon this morning is Sleepy Joe. Sleepy Joe. Here's some chuckles. I don't know what you're laughing about. It has to do with Joseph's dream. Sleepy Joe. We are just getting into Matthew, and so welcome. For those of you, if it's your first time, this is our second sermon in our series. We're going to go straight through Matthew's gospel. So if you're joining us here or online, wherever you are at in the world, we welcome you. And today, today we get into some incredible, incredible claims as to who Jesus is. But as we get into Matthew's gospel, we're going to see a lot of stuff, just a lot of really mind-blowing, world-viewing, changing perspectives, all kind of things happen in Matthew's gospel. And so it is, I'm very, very excited. So for example, what happens when you die? Just think about that. You say, well, if you're a Christian, I think you go to heaven. What is heaven? What is its nature? What is it like? Are you like an ethereal spirit being kind of going around? Where is heaven? Is it like another dimension? Does it exist along parallel? Is it somewhere up? Is it down? What, where is heaven? Uh, those types of questions all come out in Matthew's gospel. What about, what about this? What's going on with race in our nation and race relations and these types of things? How are we to think through these? How is the church to respond and engage? Or how about this question? What is the role of the church and how much of a factor should politics play from the pulpit? Should pastors preach on politics? All that's going to be covered in Matthew. I'll propose to you, we have bought into a bifurcation, a lie. We have divorced what you believe and what you do as if we can do two separate things. And it has no implication or consequence or, or outplaying in the public sphere. Matthew addresses all of that and more. And so I am quite excited to see what this has for us. We could also talk about missions. What right do we have as a people, if any, to go to another culture who worships their own gods in their own way and call them to repent and believe? Do we have a right? And on what basis is that right? And how does that play out? You see, these are not, uh, these are very important questions for us to think through. And Matthew's gospel will address all of them. And so let's get started this week under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We have what you could call the origin story of Jesus in the flesh. And I have to say that in the flesh because it qualifies it. This isn't the origin story of Jesus, period. This is the origin story of how Jesus took on flesh, of the incarnation. That's why we're singing Christmas songs in April because this is normally when we talk about these things. The incarnation, this is the beginning of Jesus in the flesh, entering humanity permanently. And we're going to see that origin stories, all of us, I find them intriguing, origin stories can tell us a lot about a person's background, about a person's life, about why they think what they think, how they respond the way they respond. For instance, if I tell you this morning, I grew up in a military family, what do you think about that as a child? What, what implications? You're going to think, if you know anything about the military, oh, Pastor Randy probably moved around a lot when he was a child. That's right. That had an impact. 
If I tell you that uh, I'm, I'm half Mexican, you're going to say, wow, wonder if that, that's tamales on Christmas. Yes, tamales on Christmas. And my mom makes the best tamales on Christmas, right? Uh, and, and horchata and things like that. So all these types of things, just knowing those backgrounds, you can kind of extrapolate some and understand a little bit more my background and who I am today. The same is true with Jesus. We have his origin story, and it has massive implications and insight into who he is and what he came to do. So let's pray and get started. Father in heaven, you are good to your people. We thank you for this birth story, this incredible, wondrous mystery that Christ, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh. Father, there is a wonder and a simplicity to this narrative that your Holy Spirit can only begin to spark afresh in our hearts. And so would you do it, we pray? Would you change us as we look and behold your Son? May you change us into his likeness from one degree of glory to the next. We ask that you would do this here. We also lift up our sister church, Kailua Baptist, on the island of Oahu, and Pastor Todd and the other elders who serve there. We thank you for their faithful partnership in the gospel. Would you bless the leaders, bless the deacons and the congregation, give them one heart and one mind to navigate this series of circumstances in our nations all under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, would you bless and keep our brothers and sisters all across the islands, across the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I have three points for you. Number one, Joseph's dishonor. Joseph's dishonor. Number two, Joseph's dream. And number three, Joseph's decision. Joseph's dishonor, his dream, and his decision. This is where we're going to walk through this text and kind of make sense of it. So number one, verses 18 and 19, we have Joseph's dishonor. Let me read it briefly. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Put literally, the genesis of Jesus Christ took place in this way. That should hearken your brain back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and following. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came to be together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Oh my goodness, we have so much to discuss in this whole section before us, all the way through verse 25. As a preacher, what do you spend time on, right? Just think about this. You get to sit in my shoes for a second. What do I do with our brief time together? Do I talk about the virgin birth? We could spend a whole sermon on that. Do I talk about Matthew's use of the Old Testament and the New? Do I talk about Jewish betrothal customs and how that impacts our understanding what's happening here? Do we talk about what Emmanuel means, God with us? Or perhaps spend time, the whole sermon thinking, and just pondering what it means that Jesus will save his people from their sins and the origins of his name, God saves. What do we spend time on? There's so much. 
Well, we aim to preach expositionally here. So uh, perhaps in Christmas, I might zoom in on one of those portions, one of those elements for the season. But today, we want to go through Matthew, and we want to align our thoughts with Matthew's trajectory. We want to think Matthew's thoughts. What are you getting at, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? We want, to, we want his point. And as I do that, the emphasis is clearly not on Jesus, believe it or not. Not here. The emphasis is on Joseph. From chapter 1, verse 1 to now, this has been about Joseph. Joseph is at the forefront of this narrative. Joseph is the hinge at this point in the story that on which the redemptive story of God swings or hangs. His response, Joseph's response to Mary's pregnancy is what's driving the tension in this story. If Joseph bails out, and he has many reasons to bail out at this point, guess what happens to the legal claim of Jesus to the throne of David? Nada. It is null and void. He's got nothing. He cannot be the Messiah. He can be the Son of God, but he cannot be the Son of David and inherit the promises of God for Israel. Right now in the story, it pivots on Joseph's response to this news. Now, we know how he responds, don't we? We know the rest of the story. But the backdrop of his response is what's going to add the nuance that I think many of us miss as this plays out. And, the, and in the process, when we see this, you're going to see our collective understanding of what Jesus came to do and how he is going to do it is going to be totally reoriented. And so let's get into it. The birth of Jesus took place in this way. This identifies this as a birth story. We all love birth stories, right? When you have your child, people want to know, oh, how does it go? How did it come? How did things go? We all like to hear a birth story. And Jesus' birth story is unlike any other birth story because Matthew tells us this is the birth story of the Messiah, the anointed one of the Christ. Now, when we hear the words Jesus Christ, we tend to think of Christ as the, the last name of Jesus, don't we? Jesus, first name, last name, Christ. But understand, that's actually a title. That is not a name. That is his title. You could say, more appropriately, Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. It's a very meaningful title. So Christ would be the Greek form. Messiah would be the Hebrew form. It means anointed one. And if we look at the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 16. 1 Samuel 9, 16, I'm going to read it. I'm also going to read 1 Samuel 16, verse 12. So if you have your Bibles, turn them on, open them up, click there, or it will be on the screen magically in a moment. 1 Samuel 9, 16 says this, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall, here it is, anoint him to be the prince over my people Israel. Who is this referring to? Those of you who know your Bible stories? Saul, the first king of Israel. God would anoint him 
through Samuel the prophet to show that this was God's chosen king. He and he alone at that time could lay claim to Israel's throne because God chose him. Or fast forward a little bit, 1 Samuel 16, verse 12 to 13. 1 Samuel 16, verse 12 through 13. And mind you, we have to have this in the backdrop. We will not understand what Jesus has come to do without this in the backdrop. 1 Samuel 16, verse 12 to 13. This is about David, and he sent and brought him in. Now, David, he was, a ready, he was ready and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said to Samuel, that is, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. In each case, consistently in the Old Testament, anytime you see this anointing, it is either of a king or of a priest. It is either of a king or of a priest to denote God's chosen one. And so when we see this title, this, this label Christ or Messiah, or anointed, the gospel writers claim that Jesus and Jesus alone is God's chosen, the fulfillment of Old Testament promises and types. This is the true king, the true Davidic king, the promised king. And we're going to see this was fulfilled in a very different way than we expected. And at the outset of verse 18, now we, we go through this in chunks, right? We did the genealogy, and now we're doing the birth story. But we can't divorce the two. It's one story. It goes together. These two go together. The genealogy establishes the legal claim of Jesus to the throne, through, to the throne of David through Joseph, and it also serves as a highlight reel of the story of Israel from cov- or creation in Genesis to covenant with Abraham to kingdom with David to exile in Babylon. This is a truncated overview of what happened in the Old Testament. So the genealogy establishes the historical highlight reel, so to speak. The birth story explains how this king was born, how these things came to be. So we could say, and this is what I love, the genealogy roots this work, God's work, and history The virgin conception is God's undisputable signature over history. That's his signing the portrait. This is the work of God. So, the scene opens up with Mary and Joseph's betrothal. Now, it says they were betrothed. We need to know just a little bit about that. We're not going to spend a ton of time here. But the Jewish betrothal custom was uh, generally a man would pay a bride price to the parents of a, of a daughter, and he would purchase, so to speak, this was his, like an engagement ring. We do an engagement ring now. That's our bride price, right? But he would pay a bride price for this woman he intended to marry. Often, these women in the Jewish culture were very young, somewhere between 12 to 14 years of age. And so if you want to know how old Mary was when she was betrothed to Joseph, it was between the ages of 12 and 14 years old. After this bride pot price was paid, they were considered to be legally married. They were legally married. Now, the consummation of that marriage would wait about a year. About a year. In the meantime, 
Mary and Joseph would live separately. She would live in her parents' house. He would live in his parents' house. He would barely, if ever, see her during that period. As he's waiting, there's a lot here for us actually to think about. As he is waiting for that day, he is preparing a place for her in his father's house. Does that sound familiar at all to you? I hope it does. But this was the betrothal practice. And then come wedding day, there would be a huge celebration. Sometimes it would last as long as a week. And then he would go out and get his bride. And in a large triumphal procession with his family and friends and village, would bring her back to his house. And they would be married. The marriage would be consummated. There's a big picture there, by the way, which we're not going to talk about today. But this scene opens up and it says they are betrothed. And in this one-year time period, before it has been consummated, it says Mary was found to be with a child, pregnant by the Holy Spirit or from the Holy Spirit. Things haven't changed much in the last 2,000 years. Today, if your girl tells you, uh, she's pregnant with child from the Holy Spirit. You're going to look at her and think, does she think I'm a moron? Does she think I'm crazy? Joseph was no different. He thought the exact same thing. When, when she says, look, I got this crazy thing happened to you. This angel came. I, I promise, I swear. And he's like, yeah, right, okay. Uh, I'm going to sign the papers. I'm not going to put you to, to open shame, right? Joseph is just not having it. He wasn't buying it. The scriptures says that he was a just or a righteous man. Apparently, he cared for Mary, so he didn't want to submit her to open shame. Interesting application point here. Joseph, the righteous, doesn't try to openly shame others in their moral failings. Interesting. He could have to protect his own name. He could have put her to open shame take her to the courts, bring great dishonor on her and her family, could have had her stoned according to the law on the books. Not that they practiced it at that day, but he could have. And yet the righteous one here shows mercy. This is a foreshadowing of the type of man Jesus would be, the type of king he would establish. It would be one that shows mercy to those who deserve shame. Joseph showed her mercy, and he was therefore going to divorce her quietly. Divorce her quietly. That's his dishonor. Number two, Joseph's dream. I imagine all of this would be quite stressful. You'd probably have a, a many nights of, of sleeplessness or struggling to get to sleep. If you're Joseph, you've got things happening. I've got to cancel the wedding. I've got to file this stuff. What am I going to do? What is my family going to think? What, how am I going to respond? Right? And Joseph's there, and he goes to sleep, or he's trying to sleep, and then all of a sudden, he has an unforgettable dream in verse 20 through 23. Here's what it says. But as he considered these things, behold an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, pay attention to this, by the way, Joseph, son of who? David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We'll stop there. Fascinating 
He calls him Joseph, son of David. Why is that fascinating? Because here's another clue to who the person of emphasis is. Nowhere else in this section or even in this whole gospel does Matthew refer to anybody else as the son of David except for Jesus and except here. Only Joseph. Son of David. Matthew's cueing us into something. He's highlighting the importance of what is happening here. This angel is informing and affirming to Joseph that the Holy Spirit is responsible for generating, for bringing about this child. This is no issue, by the way, if you believe the first three chapters of Genesis. We got no issues on the virgin conception of Jesus if you believe that in the beginning there was nothing in God created. And actually, there's many parallels here. As the Spirit of God hovered upon the face of the deep, it was a creative power. Now again, that Holy Spirit is over the womb of Mary to bring life where there was nothing. This is another clue to what's happening, and we're going to, I'm sowing seeds. I'm going to pull together for you at the end of Matthew. It's going to be awesome, right? In 20 years when we get there. The angel is affirming to him that this child is brought about by the Holy Spirit of God, and he says, you will call his name Jesus, which is the, the, in Hebrew, the Hebrew form would be Joshua, God saves. Ooh, now you're going back to, to the book of Joshua, where Joshua leads on behalf of God, his people, into the promised land. Again, tons of meaning there we don't have time for today. He says he will save his people from their sins, for he will save his people from their sins. We all like, we know this, we know this, but what's happening in this moment, in this dream, is an angel is reorienting Joseph's messianic expectations. What do I mean by that? They waited for the Messiah They were expecting the anointed king to come, and they thought when Messiah came, he would save his people from their oppressors, from Rome, from their occupiers, that he would expel the unjust systems of oppression. That's what they were longing for with Messiah, that he would reestablish the throne, the kingdom of Israel would be reinstated, and again, God's people would inherit the promised land. That's what they were waiting for. And so when the angel says he will save his people from their sins, reoriented. And Matthew's going to do this over and over again. What is Messiah coming to do to save his people from their sins. Jesus comes as a king to prepare a people first. To first prepare a people and then prepare a place for them. Matthew says all of this is in fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. And this is huge with Matthew. We're going to hear this constantly. This fulfillment, all this took place to fulfill. All this took place to fulfill. As the scriptures had said, this was fulfilled. This is huge for Matthew. He wants us to see that Jesus, and in him, over and over, repeatedly, that the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. Now, he quotes from Isaiah 7.14. We're going to spend the rest of our time there. He is not just randomly pulling out an Old Testament passage like, hey, this sounds good. Let me apply it to Jesus right? Sometimes you ever do that? You ever look up the little cross-reference, and it's like, this is in fulfillment of the prophecy, and you read that, and you're like, this doesn't sound like a prophecy, right? 
I don't get it. What, what's happening? We're going to spend the rest of the time here, and we're going to see how he's not randomly pulling from this Old Testament passage. There's context to Isaiah 7 that his readers would have known that we do not know, and it will help us to know what's happening here. So, what's the context of Isaiah chapter 7? What is what the church fathers called originally the fifth gospel, right? The fifth gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Isaiah, they called the fifth gospel. Kind of like we call Vegas the ninth island, right? It's the ninth island. Isaiah's the fifth gospel. There's lots here. What's happening in Isaiah chapter 7? Here's what's going on. This is before the fall of Israel. At this time, the kingdom is in place. It is divided. There is the southern kingdom of Judah, right? So just think southern. We'll just, you probably can't picture this area in your brain, so we'll just use Maui, all right? We'll say Kihei. The southern kingdom of Judah is down south, Kihei. Then you have the northern kingdom of Israel. We'll call this north side, right? We're, we'll, we'll say we're Paia. Oh, Paia, the northern kingdom. Ah, those, those hippies out there, right? right whatever, right? But uh, we'll say Paia, the northern kingdom, north shore, right? Above them would be Syria, another country, Syria. And further up north still, would be Assyria, the Assyrian Empire. And so now this is where Isaiah, he's living. He's down in the southern kingdom of Judah. You've got Pekah, the son of Ramalia, in the, king, the northern kingdom of Israel. You've got Assyria rising to power, fighting, working their way south toward Israel, toward Judah. And now you have this mega empire just plowing down countries and nations and empires. And the, the southern kingdoms are seeing this. Israel sees this. Syria sees them coming. They see Egypt falling. And they say, we're next. And now they're going to form a coalition. They're going to try and band together. Hey, Israel, let's, let's work together. And now, now Israel and Syria are trying to pressure Judah to form their alliance, to, to join their alliance. And they don't do it initially. And so now they threaten them. In essence, you either join us or we will depose you. We will go to war against you. We will depose you. We will set up another king and then you will join us. It says the king of Judah, the son of David, the house of David, the reigning king from David's line, his name was Ahaz. When Ahaz heard this news, and all Israel is said they shook like trees in the forest shake when the wind blows. When he heard these threats, he was fearful. He was scared. Where's he going to turn? Who's going to help him? He's outnumbered here. He's outnumbered there. Where does he go? So God sends Isaiah. He sends Isaiah the prophet to Ahaz, and he tells Ahaz, stand firm. Ahaz, do not turn to them. Their counsel shall not stand. Stand firm. He goes on in Isaiah 7, verse 9, and he tells Ahaz, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. He calls him to trust in him. Ahaz, I know it looks bad. Trust in me. 
And after God calls Ahaz to trust in him, to be firm in his promises, to provide and to work on their behalf, Isaiah tells Ahaz, to prove it, ask God for a sign. Ask him for a sign, a miracle. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Ahaz, you set the terms. Ask God for a sign to prove that he is with you. Trust him. You know what Ahaz says? Uh, uh, I'm good. I don't want to put God to the test. He tried to sound humble and pious. I don't want to put God to the test. I know that's bad. But you see, Ahab only seemed pious. He only seemed holy. This was actually a front. Ahab didn't care about testing God. He was just cloaking his unrighteousness with religiosity. Why? Why do I say that? How do I know that? The text tells us Ahaz had already sold out. Ahaz had already went into cahoots, if you will, with Assyria. He had already made a deal with Assyria. I'm going to help you if you fight these guys off. He turned to Gentiles for help. He sold out rather than turning to God for help. He turned to Assyria. He placed his bets with the larger army. God was drawing out Ahaz's heart. He knew that. Here's a little application point we need to be aware of. Sadly, sadly, many times when people are in sin, when people are sinning or doing something wrong, it is very, very common for them to cloak their compromise with pious words and religiosity, just like Ahaz. I don't want to test God. Ahaz didn't care about testing God. He knew he had already compromised. We do the same thing. We cloak our compromise and our disobedience with false words of religiosity, and we try to cloak our actions as if they are motivated by holy ambitions. Isaiah saw right through Ahaz, and he called it out. He saw right through his fake religiosity. And beloved, the same happens today. And when you see it, don't be duped by it. Call it out. Call it out in love, patiently, full of grace, but do it. Nobody is helped when we clothe our sins and our compromise under the cloak of fake religiosity. We do not help them by going along with it. And so Ahab rebukes, sorry, Isaiah rebukes Ahaz in verse 13 and 14, and he says this. Here's Isaiah's rebuke. Hear then, O house of David, Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? He's rebuking Ahaz. And then Isaiah goes ahead and gives him the sign. Ah, you're not going to ask for a sign? I'm going to give it to you anyways. Verse 14, this is our quotation from Matthew. Therefore the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In other words, here's the sign. Here's how you know that God is for you. A woman will give birth to a son. An incredible circumstance will come about, and a child will be born. And this child is your sign that God is with you, if only you would trust him. Now, 
There's more to say about how that would play out for Ahaz, and maybe when we go through Isaiah one day, we will see that. But for now, let's see the parallel. Here's the parallels that Matthew sees, and this is why Matthew's brain goes there. Okay, here's the parallel that Matthew sees. Ahaz, the son of David, is tempted to fear and to compromise. As he looks around his dire situation, he's tempted to turn elsewhere rather than to trust in God. Joseph, now fast forward, the son of David, Ahaz, son of David, Joseph, the son of David, is likewise in a difficult situation and full of fear. Did you hear the first thing the angel says? Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Joseph is also in a dire situation. Why? Because if he follows God, he is going to face accusations of immorality. He is going to face shame in his community. Nobody is going to believe him and This is all he has to take if he trusts God. Yet God called Joseph to faith, to trust in him. Just as God called Ahaz to trust in him, God calls Joseph to trust in him. And if he did, Joseph, you're going to see the mighty saving hand of God play out in your life. Ahaz sold out. What would Joseph do? What would Joseph do? Number three, Joseph's decision. Verse 24 and 25, Joseph's decision. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. What did Joseph do? Joseph faithfully did what the Lord required of him, no matter the cost. And as such, in Matthew's narrative, Joseph is held out as the first model, the first example of those who would have faith in Jesus as the Messiah. He is held out for us to emulate, to follow God, no matter the cost, no matter the implications, to trust the promises of God. And so, let's apply this and we'll round it out. Here's our first application point. This is a a question for you to ponder. So your first application is really a question for your mind. Here's your first question, or your first application. Now, we tend to think of the gospel. If I were to ask you, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? What would you say? I'm going to guess if you answer as, let's just, I'll sharpen it up for you you would say the gospel is that God in Christ, because of the finished work of Christ, saves sinners, forgives them of their sins for all who turn and believe in Jesus. Something of that nature. We tend to think of the gospel in what we could call Pauline. What I mean by that is the Apostle Paul. Paul's descriptions of the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. That's how we tend to think of the gospel. Is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. That's absolutely right. However, is that all the gospel is? In other words, if you were to search Matthew and ask Matthew, what is the gospel? Could we answer that in Matthew's terms? You say, yes, right there. He will save his people from their sins. Yes, I agree, 100%. There it is. Now, let me ask you this. Here's your question. 
what is the link between Jesus as Messiah and King and the forgiveness of sins? And then how does that play out into the gospel message? What is it? Because that's not often a part we hear. If I ask you the gospel, you think in terms of forgiveness of sins, not an establishment of kingship. You see? How might that impact? What is the link? I just want that to sit with you. What is the link between Jesus as Messiah and King, anointed King, and the forgiveness of sins, and how does that all play out in the gospel? That is going to change potentially your life, but most certainly, most certainly how you view the gospels and the work of Jesus. It's not going to make it less than what Paul, what, that, what we said. It's not going to make it less than that. It certainly is not less than that. It's going to magnify it going to blow it up in all of its implications for your life. Second application point. We see Joseph's dream, Sleepy Joe, and in that dream, the angel reoriented Joseph's understanding of the Messiah and what he would do and how that would happen. Let me ask you this. What orients, what orients your understanding of reality? Is it God's revealed word Is it cultural norms? Or maybe it's a desire for something that you have. It starts with a desire, and then it leads you to search the Scriptures, often in vain, but it leads you to search the Scriptures to try to make the Bible say what it wants you to say in order to justify your actions. So is it a desire that orients your view of God's Word? Is it cultural norms? Beloved, I want to urge you as the angel commissioned by God to Joseph to reorient his understanding, I want to encourage you, may we let God's word do the same. May you let God's word stand. May his word orient your hearts and your minds. And I can guarantee you it will almost many, many times, I should say, not almost always, but many times it's going to rub against your desires. It's going to rub against cultural norms. You're going to have a point, many points in your life where you say, I want this, and God's word says, my way is better. Trust me. Trust me. Beloved, let God's word orient your heart and your life. And this orientation for Joseph and for Israel was that they needed deliverance They needed deliverance, not from something outside of themselves, but they needed a Savior from something inside themselves, from their sin. Did you know that's true of every one of us? That's true of every one of us. They needed a Savior for their sin. You need a Savior for your sin. So I want to ask you, if you're Maybe you don't claim to be a Christian and you're here and you're maybe exploring the faith or you're watching and you're exploring the faith and you're maybe here because a friend or family member or a loved one has you here or watching. I want to say to you, Jesus came to save you from your sin. Your greatest need in this life is for the God of heaven to forgive your sins, and to bring you to himself. The longing you feel, the aching desire of, man, I just think there's something more to this life. 
those desires, those longings, or that dissatisfied sense you have with this life, it will exist, and it is only able to be fulfilled in God. And he offers you himself. He holds out himself. He invites to draw you in if you will turn to him and trust him as your Messiah and as your Savior. He can forgive you of your sins. And so, non-Christian, I do pray if you're exploring that you would join us in this journey through Matthew. I pray that today you would give your life to Christ. But if not, join us. I invite you, join us through Matthew and see, come and see the glories of this man, Jesus. But Christian, Christian, you need saving from your sins too. Do you know that? You need deliverance from your sins. I want you to survey the current challenges in your life. Think about what, what's in here. You've got health issues, maybe. You've got familial issues. You've got relational issues. You've got work issues. You've got mental issues, things going on in here all the time. Whatever it is, what is the challenge you came in with? What is the hardest part of your life that you're like, oh, man, I just wish God took this thing away. Let me tell you something, right? This is reality here. The biggest challenge in all of those things is not those things. It's how this is responding to them. Will I respond to my spouse with faith, hope, and love when it's hard? The way Christ would have me to. Will I respond to my trial, my loss of a family member, to my, you think, but, but you don't understand what they're doing to me. I don't. I never would claim to. I do know that the Lord is at work in you. You have the Holy Spirit of God in you. You are a new creation, and he asks that you would follow him and trust him like Joseph, no matter the cost. And so I want to encourage you, Christian, this morning. Jesus lives to save you from your sins. He will forgive you for your sins, and he will rescue you out of them if, you will obediently follow him as Joseph did. Ironically, Joseph didn't get to see God's hand up front, did he? He had the, the virgin birth. He had a dream. That was it. He didn't know what Jesus would do or how that would play out. He had to follow God in faith. So, beloved, what area... Where is God beckoning you to follow him in faith? Well, you might wonder, can I have a sign? Can I have a sign, God, before I follow you? Matthew would have us look no further than the entrance of Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is your sign that God is for you wherever you follow him. And so we close with the words of Isaiah to Ahaz. If you are not firm in the faith, if you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this great promise of Emmanuel that Christ has come and Christ is with us. And so as we look back at this birth story, may we be propelled to follow you into new obedience and to greater faith. Make us firm, Father. And I pray if there are any here, who are exploring this faith, may they today be willing to draw themselves near to Jesus. 
by the power of your spirit and profess Jesus as their Messiah and King. Would you do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.